Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to acknowledge conventions such as WeedonCon. WeedonCon is a fan-generated charity event for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, Firefly, and all Joss Whedon creations. It is scheduled for October of 2020 and is held in Los Angeles, California. Portion of the proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center as well as the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship. See details at WeedonCon.com. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we are welcoming Kevin Pike. Kevin has an amazing career stretching back decades, and I'm going to ask, before you start the interview part of this episode, open up whatever web browser is handy to you, and go to the show notes of this www.aaronbossig.com. I'm going to link to Kevin's IMDb page, Look up what he's done, because I guarantee there's going to be at least one, but I'll bet you two or three different shows or movies you really like that he has worked on. Kind of get a frame of reference for what we're about to talk about. Let's get started. We are here with Kevin Pike. How are you doing today, good sir? I'm fine. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to be here. I am honored to have you here. Looking over, I I will admit that the main reason I... The main thing that brought me into your career was the Back to the Future movies, but you have been working on a lot of things I have enjoyed throughout my life, so I don't know, really know where to start. Um, we've got Star Trek movies, we've got sitcoms, and before we started, you were telling me a lot about your illustrious career, and I am drawn to how you've atta- uh, attracted yourself to all this stuff, how you've gotten into all this stuff. Well, um, it was kind of a jigsaw puzzle of a map. Um, I was in the creative field in high school. I wasn't really the sports figure. We had Mm -hmm. a very small high school. We only had 88 kids in our class. So we never had a football team. We had baseball, soccer, and uh, basketball. So I was the guy that set up the projectors for the audiovisual club for assemblies and camera to take pictures of the sports players and we learned everything in the dark room and then the drama club i was uh, the president for four years of my high school and a little acting trophy for one of the plays and we thought that was going to be a way to go and as life happens all things change and it didn't go in the direction i wanted and i ended up getting asked by a bartender i worked with at a restaurant in fort lauderdale florida to come up early in 1974 to be in, uh, work in a restaurant called the Harborside in uh, Egerton, Martha's Vineyard. And um, I went up there, it was early, it was still very cold, and I got a job as a busboy. And one evening around Easter time, a party came in and they were the beginning party to start the work on Jaws, getting the orca ready. And then soon after that, um, Everything would happen with the sharks and the shooting company and Spielberg at all. And I was there at the right time and I ended up getting a job very quickly and worked from the beginning to well after they left. And I had a little punch list of refurbs to do and realized it was kind of lonely. And then I turned around and wheeled out to Hollywood and got back in with some of the same people that I worked with on Jaws and ended up at Paramount making sharks for a movie called Islands in a Stream with the same bunch of guys. And the career took off after I got all my days in and learned TV. Universal is very busy with a lot of shows at the time. Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman, all, they all had good special effects in them all the time. And Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, Emergency, there was always something to work on there. And learned a lot. And then I started getting my own small shows and a movie of the week. And then I did a small feature and chomp, chomp, chomp. Worked all the way up and started doing some bigger projects. And obviously, you see some of the hits in my IMDb. If you go there, you'll recognize something, I'm sure, that you've seen. That was the experience I had. I mean, um, just to throw one example out, I'm a giant Trekkie. You worked on several of the Star Trek projects. Um, That alone was like, okay, I could talk to you all day about just that. But also... Full disclosure, I'm an MST3K fan, and when you, I saw you worked on City Limits, which is one of my three favorite episodes ever, that was... Wait, wait, 
Mm-hmm. They did one on city limits. Yes, they did early on. Oh, oh, hook me up with that link. I'd love I, to see that one. I will make sure you get that after we chat there because it is, it's a great movie for that project. I actually would watch it without the puppets if I had the opportunity, but it, it they were firing on all thrushes when they did that one. You're talking about city limits. Uh huh. Is that what you said? Yep. With and with that's Ray the one. Yes, and James Earl Jones yep. and um, good guys and bad guys, right? Yep, the, the comic books and the eating dog food, yep. Great. I'd love to take another look at that. So, Do you have any memories from making that, or was that an interesting project? Or uh, um, they, I had just finished Jedi, my part. I did a lot of pyro on the Jedi stuff in the forest and uh, down in the desert, human desert with the Sarlacc pit and the mothership and you know, sparks and laser hits on the Ewoks and the guns of the Scout Walker and things like that. And the AD, one of the ADs, was going to work on that show, and he had heard that they were having a little bit of discussion with the pyro and the current effects supervisor, and they asked me if I would come down and assist. And I came down and realized that this needs help. And tried to work it so it was safe and everything else and they had built a, a watchtower that they wanted blown up but they really hadn't fabricated it in a way that it would come apart properly without being a danger to everybody down below and i addressed that and said that had to be changed and stuff like that and then we had a we had a, a air a model aircraft airplane that went into a pile of something and blew up a motorcycle guy jumping over a cliff or something. I forget, but we had a series of pyros that I was responsible for and, and to get through that. And I remember we were downtown in the meatpacking district of Los Angeles. And on that first night of our shooting there, it was the first night that they were going to spray the um, chemicals that killed the medfly back then. And we were all outside when everybody was told to stay indoors tonight. And um, sure enough, we got dusted. So I don't have any medflies anymore, but um, I had a nice time working with the people. And uh, it was a pleasure to come in and, and be the fixer for a couple of pieces. And um, I haven't looked at it in a while, but I'd love to look at it again with the, uh, the track of the robots dissing it. That'd be fun. So when you're pulled in to be a fixer, is that... Is there a, a different tone when you're saying somebody else started the project, but we, we need a helping hand here? Is there extra tension or is it a, a, a way to try to start something fresh? Yeah, you get you get two choices. You can say yes and no. No, thanks. You know, you, you, you deal with the guy or you deal with the problem or you can say, let me let me go in and, and help and see what I can do. And, and you stay nice and you be friendly. Um because you'll win more on the end as being the guy that came in to help set it right. Now you, you're biting off a, a big piece that you don't know which way it's going to go on you. And you don't know how the other person's going to handle them. It's not somebody that was removed off the show. They just wanted to cover their fannies and make sure that when this happens, everything's going to go good. Um, and, and I had just come from a show we had done respectable amount of daily pyro. So it was like, okay, I'm up on this one. It wasn't like I called, got called out of retirement or anything. And we got through. But many times, Aaron, when we go to a new show in the whole line of shows that you get tossed onto, sometimes you know the people, sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's a new director you never worked with. Sometimes it's a real tough guy and you've heard about it. And on and on and you don't know where your place is. So part of Hollywood is kind of like that game where you have to learn how to introduce yourself to people and you have to get along with people and you have to kind of play basketball and put your elbows out when you get the rebound and make your space and um, make sure you can fit in without stepping on everybody's toes. And when you're replacing somebody or assisting somebody um, and you're doing pyro, well, if you're the main card holder, number one person, you really have to make sure that you have those rights and that it's going to go just like you planned. Mm-hmm. And because of that, because of that, then you have the power and it kind of can go the way you want it to and with good results. That's the, yeah. Thank you for that. Because I, 
I hear a lot of stories about how things behind the scenes end up creating a lot of tension. There's a lot of conflict. And, you know, with so many people working on a project like that, you, you can't function if you don't have somebody in there who can say, let's just agree to work on this and get the job done. You have a lot of egos. There's a lot of people that have an ego. There's a lot of mm -hmm. climbers, right? There's mm -hmm. a lot of people that they think their background um, gives them the regard that they need to do everything they want the way they want. And um, obviously you have a chain of authority with the director and, and he has limits between budget and creativity. And then you have actors and sometimes there's, uh, sometimes there's ego and sometimes they're the nicest people that you ever want to work with. Um, and, and you never know. So when you go in, there's part of the excitement about this new fresh show and who are these people? Oh, I, I worked with him and oh, I know her from wardrobe and, and, and it's fun. And, it, and it's like um, a class reunion in a way, mm -hmm. to some degree. And other times it's a brand new guy. I never worked with this director before. Uh, maybe in a couple of days, I'll have him understood or I'll have him eaten out of my hand like a little baby bird. It all depends upon what you deal with as far as a personality. But I've dealt with up and down, so um, I can go into the room on day one and express an air of confidence to them that I've done this and I'm good with that. And yeah. usually it works out. Yeah. But I mean, looking at your, your resume, which is a mile long, and yet you don't have the ego you're just speaking of. We had a chat off camera. We're having a chat off camera. I'm not sensing anything but humility from you, which I, I admire a great deal. You're saying well, you the sooner you learn that, the sooner you learn that, the better off you are. The sooner that you get ego out of the formula, mm -hmm. the sooner you let that go, the sooner your world opens up and everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. That ego is just an insecurity. Somebody didn't protect you when you were younger. And now you think you need somebody to give you a gold star. And when you learn that about you, all you got to go and do is be nice and be competent and do your job. And hopefully you get rewarded well. And it ends up being a good experience. And do that with everybody. Because the wonderful part about meeting people, and I've met a lot of people, and I've worked with, fortunately, a lot of stars and seen a lot of good on-set performances that many a new actor would die to witness. Um, you be nice to people and try to be helpful and and be responsible for what your authorities were granted and perform and perform well. Everybody's counting on you. Mechanical effects is an extremely difficult choice if you want a job that's going to be hard. Uh, you know, what, what happens if we forgot a piece and we didn't get the nuts, but we got the bolts so I'll put mm -hmm. them top down and see if it can stay on. It's fraught with mechanical challenges on everything you do no matter what you've got figured out and so do your best you can but you learn and in the learning take it with you apply it to the next and remember just go in be nice to people and see if you can help them get through that what they want to achieve it, yeah and that's i'm so glad you're bringing that up because like one of the things we, we really like into is how people use the fiction we get into to make their lives better and to build better communities and it's so easy to just get wrapped up in the drama and the egos, like you just said, and not think that you know, look, there's actually a way you can use, look at this as a, a way to manage a project, manage a team, and come out with a good result. You have a common bond in the fact that you realize that you're all trying to tell a story. You could read books to, to first graders. Um, you could do little video cartoons, uh, animatronics, animation, uh, video games. Mostly, we're making a movie. And I'm very fond of film as uh, that medium. Um, and the other thing you have to respect is the perpetuity. It, it, it runs forever. Back mm -hmm. to the Future is on some cable someplace every single day. Kids, go watch Back to the Future. G-rated movie. Everybody can watch it. Everybody loves it. Good ending, happy fun, good characters, great script, lots of effects, and go have some fun. Now, did I know when I started that film that it was going to be like it is now? That I would be talking to you now? No. But you try to do your best back then, and you never know where it's going to end. You never know what's going to happen. 
And so um, we're all trying to make a film. So let's remember that's the goal. The writer is, is the fortunate person to everybody on the set because of his story. We are now there. Thank you in gratitude and respect that and know that it's not your show. It's not your show. It's everybody collectively working like a school of fish to make this happen. And hopefully the public will like our art. That it, you hit the nail right on the head there. It's like you're, you're wanting to tell a story. And uh, like you said, you didn't know how many years ago that the story would be retold and enjoyed so much. It was something you did to earn a living for yourselves. And so that somebody else could have two hours of fun in a movie theater back in the mid 80s. Correct. But we That's had so correct. much fun, it made our lives better. We found a bond there's over. There's a film. There's right. a film. Me, you. Here we go. There's a film that you might like, and it mm -hmm. wasn't a big film, but you like it, mm -hmm. and that's great. Mm -hmm. There's a film for everybody. What's your favorite film? What's your favorite film? What's your favorite film? Okay, might all be different. A couple of you might like the same thing. It doesn't matter. Just look at the menus that are afforded you these days. Look at the amount of channels. Look at the amount of medium that's out there. You're going to find something you like, maybe something new you haven't heard of, haven't watched yet. I got I to gotta binge that show. Okay. Mm -hmm. We're very lucky to have all of that out here now for our enjoyment and help us get through these tough times. Yeah. I, I love to grab people when they say, I'm about to start Star Trek The Next Generation. And I've never seen it before. And I say, okay, tell me when you start and then tell me when you watch the last episode. Because the conversation, you're going to be a different person afterward, whether you liked it or not. I don't know. But you're going to be a different person after you take that trip. And I want to talk to both those people. So let's just take Jaws. We got mm -hmm. a kid that's 22 years old that doesn't have a job, that's worth doesn't know anything about building sharks, doesn't know any of the people on the show. And I just happened to go into the Martha's Vineyard, the Edgerton Post Office, and the guy I met at the restaurant he was coming out. And I said, How about the job? He, he says, We're starting tomorrow, you know, $3.50 an hour. Ooh, I got money. Hmm. And uh, go down to the boathouse, and then, uh, well, what can you do? And I turned around, and I looked him right in the eye, and I said, You just show me one time, and I can do anything. <laughs> Where did I get that? Is that confidence or is that ego? But he said, okay, well, you can run power tools. I said, yeah, like cut up stock links, lumber, whatever. And we went down there. And the next thing you know, he had me in charge of all the time cards, the purchase orders, Betty Cash, the coffee breaks, all the purchases for everything for the Orca, the Cabanas, the boardwalks, the snow fence, the gazebos, everything that we built. And and I one time I was working on the Orca with him. And I said, you know, I'd like a part in the movie. He says, you have a part. You do, and that rearranged my thinking. That really hit home. I do. My job is to be the laborer for the construction crew, and work and help everything to get made so that they can shoot it. I didn't know Spielberg. I didn't know the story. I didn't get a script. I didn't have any of that. It's just do this, do that, do this, do that. I'm here. I'm doing it. And then the sharks came, and then okay, go help the guys on the sharks and do this, do that, and do this, do that. And everything in between, all the way to the end of that story. And I helped load every shark. Oh, my gosh, the guy's really here. And away they go, the runway of tears. Come out to Hollywood. You'll like it out there. Okay. They gave me a punch list and a sack of dough. Go fix the overspray on the Menentia post office. There's a ramp to be pulled out. We've got the grass at the Brody house to be fixed. And I'm by myself. And after about a week, then I was pretty much done. I go, you know. This isn't fun. Why? I'm all alone. You know, I, I like people. So I just said, Dad, I'm going out to Hollywood. November of 74, I hit LAX. And so you hit there, and you're working almost right away, apparently, because you, you found the Jaws project. I, I did the Jaws project, and that was done. They had oh, okay, okay. pieces to do out here, and, and now I'm out here. And I got X amount of dollars. And how far is that going to get me? And I went across the street and I said, I'd like to rent a car. And they said, do you have a credit card? And I didn't. But I came from a town where you really didn't need a credit card. Yeah, right. sure, Kev, we'll get a car here for you. And we're a small little town in Connecticut called Granby. 
Um, and everybody knew everybody. I had, like I said, 88 kids in the class. But you come to LAX and they have all the pretty girls behind the Hertz counter and it's all business as usual because you're in the mm -hmm. big town. Okay, you know. Um, so uh, the friends that knew I had come to town, uh, phone booths and, you know, come on, I'll pick you up. You can stay at my place till you get settled. And one of the painter friends, Ward Wellen, a, a brilliant guy that helped me out so much. Um, you stay at my place, I'm doing a show in Houston and you can have it for a month or so. And then another guy said, I, we're going to Hawaii. I want you to stay at my house for three months while we're okay and okay and okay. And the next thing you know, I uh, got into studios and learned some set building and some prop making. And next thing you know, Spielberg calls and says, hey, we're going to go to Mobile, Alabama and do Close Encounters. And they said, okay, let's make sure we get Kevin on there. When they brought me on board and Went down there, nine months on the show, and six of it down in wonderful Alabama, building that big set and predominantly the sign. Uh, I spent a lot of work on the sign. I think you might be able to see it right behind me there. Yeah. The yeah. Okay. A little homage they gave me and um, did a lot of good work on that show. So you're, you build this life of yourself. And by the time you're done, like you were saying uh, earlier to me, you're working with actors, not actors, writers, directors, the whole nine yards. You know the industry like the back of your hand because, like you said, you know people. And frankly, I've been talking to you for about 20 minutes now. I would want to work with you because I could trust that you wouldn't have your ego chomping at my rear end every five minutes. There was times early on when I didn't know what I was doing and I, I didn't live in a state of fear because I always had a respect for myself because I could figure things out fairly well. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky in that department. And, but my people skills, I had to learn. And you had to learn those valuable lessons, how to treat people nice, treat them with respect and uh, have them help you do the job and keep everybody focused on the bigger goal that we're all in together. You know, we've got to finish this car by week 10 so they can start shooting it out there at Twin Pines Mall. And, you know, there's, not fraught with complications, but it was just so full of busy. All you have to do is look at a DeLorean time machine replica. There's 168 now at last count around the world. Mm -hmm. They copied the car we made, but there's so much in that car. It was always known that it was going to be busy from the drawings of Ron Cobb and Andy Probert. And we just kept filling it up and making sure that it solved all those story points. How do you get 10 people to work on a car? And then the other 10 to do all the electronics building that are going to go into the car and it has to run and has to light up and has to tell every story point. Uh, it was a big deal. And then we built two more just for the backup stunts, you know, process photography. Um, how do you get a coordinated gang? Um, you know, I, I went on Michael Jackson on Smooth Criminal. I had 60 people the whole time working how do you coordinate all that there's a lot of work to put that short piece together the dancers that lean over and all the shoot 'em ups and the fire trails and the cars flying and there was a lot of work on that so you learn that and every step is a plus and a minus you learn something and you take it with you and you use it on the next time but when you get through a lot of it it boils down to what i talked about um, you know Use your head, be nice to people, try to help them make their movie. Yeah, and that's, I'm thinking when you're dealing with making that car, people who are into things like, you know, mechanics, electronics, they, there's a lot of them. I'm not going to say everybody. There's a lot of them that don't tend to have that kind of people skill because they're more into the technical end, the mechanical end. Um, I'm just speaking from my experience because I've, you know, worked with a lot of those guys myself. And I can think, you know, you've got some people who are working on the aesthetic parts, trying to make sure those are working all right. And then you got the guys who are trying to get the actual functional electronics in there. And you have to make sure one doesn't finish before the other so they can cram it all in there like a sandwich. That's, I don't envy the position you're in there. We didn't just put LED lighting on it. They didn't have that. Mm -hmm. We put in glass and white phosphorus tubes like neon. I had a crew of five guys out in the parking lot burning every flammable fluid they have to figure out how they're going to make the flame go from orange to cool blue by the time it burns down so we can do the trails of fire. How are we going to put that down? Okay. 
Uh, I've got a guy over here starting the mold and the carving of the speaker gag. And then over here, all the rigging. You're going to hang Doc Brown up there at 84 feet on the clock tower hands. Okay, and then these guys are making the clock tower hands. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. a circus of coordination. There'll be nights when you have to wake up and sit down at the table and just write down every single thing that's going on in your head and dump that load on that paper for the morning mm -hmm. and go back so you can get your good night's rest, which was difficult specifically on Back to the Future because that location was about uh, 40, 50 miles out of town. And we had to drive through traffic at night to shoot nights. And then wow. we had to drive back in the morning. And then we had to sleep in the day with traffic and noise and planes and helicopters in Los Angeles and the gardeners and daylight. And we'd take duvetine from the grips and we'd pin it up on our walls so that we could have some kind of solace. Um, and then, of course, we had to start over. We changed actors after about five, six weeks down there and shooting nights. And then sure enough, we had to do it all over again. And now some of the gags that you had built you shot, they're done. You cut them up and threw them away or didn't need them anymore or it, it went to the dog pile and then got to bring it back to life with, a, you know, respiration or something in the mouth to mouth and let's go again. Um, it was challenging production to say the least. There's a lot of work in there. You, it gets lost in the wonderful continuity of the story that you're enjoying with the characters, but behind the scenes, Plenty to do. Just opening clock scene in Doc Brown's lab with all the way they told the story of his life mm -hmm. with all that going on. Dog food machine that does this, that, all the clocks, all big deals. I love that opening scene because it, one of the things I, I rave about when it comes to Back to the Future, and it's something even people who have seen the movie a bunch of times don't really grab that, that why I'm talking about it so much. But there's so much of that movie that is just told in the props. Like you said, when he, they're telling the story of his life, how he basically uh, burned down his house or the, so the house caught fire so he could grab the insurance money to f further the fund for the production of the time machine. And that's like, it's just told in these little newspaper snippets and these little uh, hunks you're seeing on the, the, the counter. And it's like, it, it, you can miss that so easily, but it, it's such a rich way of adding to the story. Bob Z was a genius in telling that story about a character Without dialogue, major exposition, nobody's saying, okay, this is Doc Brown, this is how I am. Mm -hmm. And and a script with Bob Gale in coordination and told that with one moving shot with a camera, everything you needed to know for opening of a movie, first he's got clocks, so that's about time, we get that. All those clocks had to be set and started and stopped. Some ran, some didn't. Some we had to pull on the pendulum, some we had to rewind every time, set the hands back, everything, hold tight, ready, and go action. Here's this fluid camera head moving across there. And then, well, the coffee's not going into a coffee pot, and so then we have to, the guy down there, make sure the drips don't get into the other electronics in the second part, and then we cue the TV set, and then we do the toast, and just balls and it has to have smoke but we couldn't have the smoke in the other pass so we had somebody underneath there putting that in and this guy's behind the wall with the clocks and then you're going to go on to the next bit of business you got a dog food machine we actually made a dog food machine that took a dog food can spun it around opened it up brought it over the bowl turned it upside down and plopped it comes out the day before the company that said we don't want our can in there you can use this can changed the dynamic of the plop. The other stuff plopped. This one didn't plop. And we actually mm -hmm. had another man underneath with a blowtorch heating up the can and getting it ready. So as soon as the camera came, it would be ready and soupy to fall out into the dish for the dog. And then, oh of my. course, you pan over. You pan over, and then you have Michael's entrance. You don't see him. Key, key under the mat. We got that story. We've heard about the missing plutonium, and he kicks his skateboard, and he goes right over to the yellow box, and there's the plutonium that everybody's looking for. How much story did you learn in there? It's, it's amazing. Brilliant. And then we find out a little bit about how the land, after the house was sold down, the land was sold to developers. I'm sure he made a pretty penny on that, which he funneled that money right into buying plutonium and other various things. It's, it's, how, about, how about the speak? How about the speak? gag. Mm -hmm. Well, we want a speaker. 
Okay, but we want a big speaker. Well, we'll go look and see the biggest speaker we can buy. Yeah. No, we want it like eight feet in, diam in the diameter. Oh, okay. And so we make it. And when it breaks, we want to make sure we can see it's gray all the way through. We had to get the right compound dye for the urethane foam. We had to carve it out, lace it with Primacord, put sparks in it, put a driver in it that hydraulically blows out. And then we had uh, air cannons up above. We put in all the lights in the box and switches and dials and meters that move. Um, we had table wipes with cables that when you let go, the bungee pulls this cable and takes everything off the table towards where the bookcase and where he's going to go. It wasn't just a guy stepping on an air pad and throwing them backwards. We had everything happening at the same time. There's five guys pressing buttons on that one. And then he has to fall. We put Michael in, we do the bookcase and then we do the far out, right? In addition, please listen to the sound that's generated by dialing up the amp to 11 and seeing the meters go. The sound guys did the best job. I enjoy it every time I see it, hear it. And it's amazing how much they can put on top of something where they've already reached the top of their game and they keep making more and more and more and more and more. So by the time he sees that glint on the pick, you know it's gonna be a big, crazy deal. And then Bob cuts everything and says, get behind the speaker, Kevin, put a little smoke on this piece of speaker and drop it out the hole and, and uh, thanks, for the, thanks for the effects. Yeah. Big deal. It, it really <laughs> is. I was saying to a guest uh, when we recorded a couple days ago that I love watching stuff like that because as much as I can appreciate movies released today, I feel like it takes less time to achieve suspension of disbelief when I can watch practical effects or just simple props that are thought out well, simple editing tricks that show you where you're supposed to look and when. I think it does the, the same job in a better fashion. Um, I always hope that as long as the movie keeps playing, that people will continue to notice. There's plenty of fandom on all the sides. Oh, did you notice this? And did you notice this? And why did this happen? And you know, some people like to pick things apart, and, but others can see, look at the craftsmanship by that entire crew, mm -hmm. entire production that made that story so well done. And the movie is the result and it's still strong as ever. Cause you know, I've got fan people tickling me from around the world about, hey, how did you put this screw in? And why is mm -hmm. this here? And what's this wire made of? Uh, no, I had a lot on my plate. I wasn't writing the book about how to build the car. So um, I, I'm assuming that looking over your shoulder there, that is the video camera that he films Doc Brown and when he takes the first jump through time. Uh, that is a, a copy of the camera that he uses to film the car for the first time. Marty, keep filming. Um, <laughs> I happened to be lucky and found that when I went to see some fans in Paris okay. on a trip there, and they had a very big, long outdoor sale with people that can sell things just like a yard sale, only all down this major boulevard. Mm -hmm. And I was walking along, and I saw the camera, and I said, that looks familiar. And I took a picture of it on my phone, and I wrote, should I buy this? <laughs> and my phone just exploded by, you know, 50,000 fans in two minutes. And I had sat down on the other table and was taking a break. And I watch people looking and I see it's still there and I see it's still there. And when we finished our little snack or refreshment, I rushed right over and I said, how much for this? And I got it for $20 and it's French. So it's not NTSC, it's PAL, mm -hmm. their standard. And all the buttons are in French. Um, but obviously it's a beautiful piece to the hero wall. And I'm sure I'm happy that I have it. I need to give a shout out to my friend, Mitch Garcia, because he helped me get some of the missing pieces, the batteries and the eyepiece. And we've got a pretty complete camera kit out of it now. Um, I love that because, like you said, you, you put it in your phone. You asked the, the entire Internet if you should buy it. And there were enough people that were just like just seeing that on my phone from wherever you're standing makes me so happy. I wanted to, I, I, I love moments like that where it's like you just have to get something because it connects you to something like that, that happy memory of the movie. Um, it, it, it's funny when people latch on to something that they see 
and then they figure out that I had worked on it. I'm sure everybody else in the showbiz gets questions and answers and when they lecture at USC or whatever. Um, and and how, how did that go? Or how was it like to work with it? But my work on the films ends up being something that's a prop or a mechanical effect that's right there. And it's a story point. And of course, a lot of guys say, oh, I wish I could build that. I, I, I'd like to make that. I, I know how to do that. I, I'm going to do that. Um, and so you have that involvement. They, they, they not only want to uh, have one as, as like buy a car, they want to build the car. They want to have the fun of making it. And that's so enjoyable to hear their, their growth when they go through the process of everything that's involved in building a DeLorean mm -hmm. Time Machine replica. I'm very curious. To learn. Uh, they, they make brand new uh, DeLoreans out of, you know, whatever they do, uh, they have new old parts or whatever. But are, is anybody buying them for anything but love of this movie? I mean, the actual love for that car kind of died years ago, but the fact that it was involved in this awesome movie, it, and it's iconic because of that. Well, there was a lot of talk around the big table about what are we going to use for the vehicle? There was an idea of plasma and then plasma and a cooler and then a refrigerator and a truck to the Trinity explosion site and how are we going to do this? Well, we need a vehicle. We definitely have to tell a story where the stuff gets around and travels as opposed to, say, uh, time time machine where he's stuck behind a wall, has to go back in time, move over, and then go forward in time kind of thing. And they ended up with a DeLorean because they wanted that spacey look, the gullwing doors, when he crashes into the mm -hmm. farmer's barn and he's interpreted as being an alien. He's in this suit and everything. So... Uh, the DeLoreans at the time were uh, fairly reasonable, let's say that. And as soon as they signed off, let's do that. It's stainless steel and we'll get some drawings and put some Reeblies on it and, and we'll take that car. Well, I think, um, I might be flattering myself, but I think because of that car being in that movie, DeLorean became a more popular car. And all of them that were still available got all bought up. And I, I, I'm honored and I get invited to go to these uh, conventions at the mm -hmm. Owners Association and uh, fans around the world. And they, you know, a lot of people that just DeLorean heads, they want to know how to fix their car and make it work. And, you know, it was a car that just never got to the finish line the way it should have. So there's always new ideas about how to make it better. And I get a lot of traffic about uh, wheels, the size, the letters, the vacuum pumps, how to make the switch work. And there's plenty of repair people out there that know how to do it. So there's all the DeLorean side. And then there's, what? Somebody made a replica of the car that we had in the movie? And then, oh, no. And then there's another one. And now there's main builders that their job is to, well, when clients come in, I'd like the car. Okay, well, it's going to cost you X thousands of dollars. And so I, I like it. I, I think I want one. And I've been guested to go hand out the keys to the new owners and things like that. Good luck. I'm glad you got it. And... Uh, and there's quite a few now around the world. I might be able to back you up a little bit on that because I knew somebody who had a DeLorean. It was blue. And, you know, everybody thinks of the silver one from the movie. They did come in all sorts of colors at the time. But he couldn't they, sell the thing. They, 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 they made a gold one as a showpiece to help introduce the car. They gold-plated it or whatever mm -hmm. they did. And then individuals sometimes took them and okay. made a red one or a black one or their own personal one, because if the stainless gets stuck, uh, scuffed up or something like that, it, it, they didn't have the technology, the idea, the knowledge at that time on how to bring it back to this uh, universal finish where it, it, it was just even everywhere uh, okay. on the car. So a lot I, of them got painted to cover that up. I, um, I, so that, but, that, that fixes me a little bit there. But um, like I, when he went to sell it, he couldn't get rid of it. Because everybody who worked with DeLorean said it's a popular car if it's silver, but if it's another color, nobody cares. So it, it was a monster of a car to get rid of at that point. I know a guy that took his car and he polished it all the way up so it looked like chromium. Mm -hmm. It was gorgeous. I it bet. looked great. What's the problem? Well, the bonnet closure, or the hood, as we would say, was so bright you couldn't drive it when the sun reflected on it. It just it'd kill you. So there you go, right? But yeah. there are people 
there are people that have the buffing down to a science. They know exactly what to do. They can take the dents out now with not a hitch and buff that pattern back in that. So it's got that look from front to back and on we go every day. Wow. Another technique. Yep. So, um, but, but to get up, cause you know, I could talk about back to the future all day and I have just asked my wife, but if you get into a situation where you're, you're moving on, you're getting into different parts of the industry, you're starting to talk to a lot more people. Like said, if you, um, you also said you like working with writers the most. Um, that grew, that grew from, <clears throat> there was a lull in our, in our world where oftentimes visual effects took some of our work away. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the union rates weren't as strong as they were. Um, uh, there was more people in our business trying to make a living doing mechanical effects. There's a lot of guys trying to do it. Um, and it got crowded and supply and demand and the effect supervisors were literally giving away the rentals for their equipment, their trailers, things like that, just to have the job, get the job. And basically the 50 year olds weren't really getting the key supervisory position because there wasn't enough work and it was all going to the veterans that were about sixties to the retirement age. And it was kind of dry. And I heard some of the deals that the kids were making. I call them kids. Um, and it was like, are you kidding me? Now I always did pretty good. I always made a good deal uh, most of the time. And I thought that I was able to do that well. And I thought, why don't I get all the effects people and I will have kind of a corner on the market because I know the, the needs and, and, and have that work out. And if I could get all the powder cards, all the pyrotechnic guys to sign, then the studio would kind of be in a box and couldn't go anywhere. And so I started on that line and I became a licensed and bonded agent and I started doing it. And it was a tough to get everybody to think differently about how mm -hmm. they could get jobs and things like that. And so then I signed people that I could maybe make some money on because they were busy and I could get work for them. And I did makeup effects and then they were directing music videos and then that started. And I moved all the way up. I had sound, wardrobe, hair, makeup, everybody, art directors. Um, the whole bit. And then I had camera sound. And then I got people that were UPMs or producers that wanted some help. And I took them on trying to figure out where this agency was going. And I had 41 clients. I had six people working in my office every day. And I got to be a lot of work. And it, and it was really a lot. So I started focusing just on the writers. I was going to pitch fest and listening to the stories. I was learning how to pitch. I was listening to how they tell the story. And I could hear that they don't have that third act just yet. And I said, well, I'll read it. Give me 10 pages. I can see their style. I can see their formatting problems. I can see everything where they want to go. And I just had from now 37, 38 years of looking at uh, stories being emoted on the set, seeing actors say lines while I'm sitting there on the smoke machine, reading it and seeing how it goes and seeing the camera moves. I, can't, I became pretty good at storytelling. And I had gone to all the master classes with Bob McKee and Sid Fields and John Truby and you know, Richie Walters, everybody. And I learned a fair amount. And so when it came time to read a script, it was easy enough for me to understand what was missing. And when the clients came to me and said, rep my script and push it to the studios. And I said, you got to build up the third act and you've got some problems here and this and that. And I'd send it back and I'd wait. And I'd wait a long time. And I said, I can't sell something I don't have. You have to finish it. And I'd get it. And it still wasn't right. And I couldn't get them to get there. And finally, I drew a line one day. I said, I'm not going to do the agency. I'm just going to help writers write well and help get them to do a script well and give them some suggestions on how to pitch it when they get the chance. And that's what I do. You have a script you haven't finished. You don't know where you're going. You need some structure, formatting, the beats, you know, whatever you need to do. Um, I'm happy to help. And all my information's on, on Facebook, anywhere you can contact me through my email. And that email is? Filmtricks at Mac.com. That's film like the movies, tricks mm -hmm. like the serial, at Mac, like the computer, dot com. That's going to be in the show notes for sure. And it's going to, I'm going to hopefully put it right on the bottom of the video here. So that way uh, somebody can definitely get a hold of you. Because I'm thinking there's something extremely fitting and extremely appropriate about a guy who builds his career in the 
the effects realm, the visual realm of movie making, winding up on the other end, build, helping people build the story end of it. Because film is a, is a visual medium to tell a story, so you just ran the gamut of talents that are needed. Yeah, I, I went back to the beginning part where you recognize on the set that we're all here because of that guy that's the writer over there making mm -hmm. sure his lines get delivered like he thought when he typed them up. And it became uh, an honor to have a chance to talk to some of the writers. Uh, Larry and I, Scott Alexander on, on uh, Ed Wood for Tim Burton. And I said, what's the hardest part when you're doing a biopic? And, and they would say, well, you can't write every single piece of his life because a movie would be as long as his lifetime. So you have to select all the elements and all the bullet points of what part of the story that you want to tell. It's going to be engaging and entertaining. And that was a light bulb. And so I learned all along the way. And I found that I had a little niche and a little you know, modicum of talent to help writers write well. And they go back and they work all week and they come back with some new notes the night before I read. And then we talk some more each week and hopefully they, they can get to the end sooner than later. A lot of people who get into screenwriting grab a, the first Sid Fields book they can find and they read it and they think they're an expert and they hit right that copy of Final Draft. What would be your response when somebody takes that tack? Um, Sid Fields was right on a lot of levels. I mean, he had the inciting incident. He had the form. He had the formula. He had it all. And he, he I took the class when we were down at the little red schoolhouse down there. And he said he learned it by reading scripts and saying, what do these have in common? What makes these work? And this was like really a, a, a formulaic idea that was newly introduced to Hollywood at the time and became mm -hmm. chatty and talking. Okay, is this the way it's going to go down? But it put the idea in the people's minds that you need some story structure. When your mom told you the story, you had a beginning, middle, and end. They lived happily ever after. And so that's a that's prime story structure right there, one, two, three. So you have to have some of that. And then it got ultra sophisticated. And a lot of people came in and shared ideas and new ways of thinking. And some of it was uh, believable and the God and the gospel at the same time. And then now you Blake Snyder and Save the Cat. And these are the beats that you have to have. And now it's mm -hmm. broken down to 15 points. And do you have it or you don't? And the studios need some way to see that it fits this pattern of interest. And do we have it or not? And that's like a standard they go by because they don't have anything else to apply. So if it's not something on page 26 that's not there, an inciting incident or something, it's not going to work. And you know how easy it is to just let's do a sequel. Mm -hmm. And so that takes everything away. And so where's a news story that we'd like to tell? And the readers go home and try to read through the weekend to get through everything. And if you're not right, you got typos, you got problems, you're in the round file and they're on to the next one. There's about 100,000 scripts on good times. This year's a little slower. Delivered and sent to the studios, uh, agents to get involved with every year. Your script has to be better than all of those. They would love to have a news story. And don't, don't let your mistakes hold you back from getting to the end. That's that's pretty good there, because it, it's so easy to get wrapped up and say, man, I screwed up at this one point in time. I missed my chance. That ship has sailed. And that's that can't be your mentality, whether you're talking about screenwriting or anything else. Um, one of the approaches I take um, is the Terry Gilliam he, he had uh, written a script he wrote on legal pad by pencil and he was in a London cab going across town and he had to go to a meeting, lawyers, pompous, business people, big uh, conference table. And when he got there, he went into the meeting and just shortly thereafter, he said, oh, like what? And he said, I left the script in the cab. And, and then he said, you know, that would have made a good movie. And he let it go. He let the whole thing go. And well, I'll write the next one. Uh, look at his creativity. It just gushes out every pore. And he writes some great stories that maintain a great deal of interest. They're wild. Yeah, I would love to be in Terry Gilliam's brain for just 30 seconds. Just get a taste of it because 
I mean, just just seeing what he manages to put on screen after it all comes out is mind blowing. Yeah, you you'd be hungry for more. Absolutely. Really. Well, Kevin, I'm loving this chat, and I can think of 17 different other things I want to talk to you about. So I'm wondering if maybe it would be a good chance to put a pin in that and swing back to it at some future time, because I'd like to take some notes and come a little bit more prepared next time. Would you that be all right? Just take a big old calendar, and you put your little flags in 17 more places down the road, and hopefully we'll, we'll uh, match up, and we'll be back telling some more good stories for your fans. Awesome. Um, you already gave me your email address. Where can people find the rest of your information on the web? Your website, social media, that sort of thing? I'm on Facebook. I got a whole bunch of fans there. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm in every all the regular places. Just Google my name. You'll see a good IMDB. That'll give you something to talk about. Um, I, I, I don't shy from the fans. I usually respond, and I'm happy to talk. The listeners on the audio version of the show were told at the beginning of this to go skim your IMDb. So if they haven't by now, I'm going to remind them to do that. Go ahead and do that. Kevin, thank you so much for being here. I had a great time. I hope they find something they like. I'd love to hear from it. And Aaron, it's been great. You gave me some great questions and I really appreciated your attention. Thank you kindly. Thank you. Have a good day, sir. I would like to thank Kevin for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. For the community building part of the show today, I want to ask for the most basic thing a podcaster can ask for after you've hit the subscribe button. And I hope you have hit the subscribe button. I would like to ask whatever platform you listen to this show on, be that Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud. I've also thrown it in on some other ones like Podbean and so forth, leave a review for the show if you could. Every podcast aggregator has a place you can leave a review, and I would really appreciate if you would do that. I realize you can only subscribe once, but you can leave a review too, and that really does help a lot. Even better, if you could list a specific episode you would recommend to a first-time listener, that would be fantastic. In addition to subscribing to our show and the places I mentioned, we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. If you'd like to get a hold of me, the address is bossigpodcast at yahoo.com. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.